I mean, as a computer engineer, I've designed many toys, including the data acquisition system of the Atlas experiment. Um, but uh, these toys make life easier, but they don't have a direct bearing on the meaning of life. Um, philosophy has. Philosophy percolates the very fabric of existence. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm returning to my investigation of the physical and philosophical bases of consciousness. Today, I'm going to be taking on a new perspective from a leading expert in both philosophy and artificial intelligence. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and share it with your friends uh, and come join our discussion on our Facebook group, The Rational View. Bernardo Castrup is the executive director of the Essentia Foundation. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. He has a PhD in philosophy and another PhD in computer engineering, specializing in artificial intelligence. As a scientist, Bernardo has worked for the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, and the Philips Research Laboratories. Double Dr. Kastrup, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks for having me, all. You have a very uh, interesting and broad resume. Um, CERN, very interesting. Philips, tell us... Uh, a bit about your background and what drove you to take on a double PhD in philosophy and artificial intelligence? Um, I've been born a philosopher, <laughs> I think, um, but I'm a child of uh, the 70s and the beginning of the computer revolution. So I fell in love with computers at six years old with my first ZX81 <laughs> in 1980. Um, so um, I have a very strong creative impulse in me. So I went ahead and did computer engineering, computer science, computer engineering, it's, it's broader than computer science. Um, did a PhD in that, reconfigurable computing, all this good stuff. And at some point I found myself working on AI. When I was at CERN, I was working on a data acquisition system of the Atlas experiment, which is part of the Large Hadron Collider complex. Um, and uh, at some point we, we could Back in the 90s, and we could already design artificial neuronal networks that were as good as physicists in identifying physical events. You know, is this an electron? Is this a jet? Have we just seen a Higgs boson or something else? And then I thought, well, if we can't, if we can't be as good as a physicist, um, then we are intelligent. What, what do I need to do extra in order to make that intelligence be accompanied by experience? in order for this computer to not only process data intelligently, but to experience its data processing in the way I seem to experience the data processing in my brain. And struggling with that question brought back all my philosophical tendencies. Um, and at some point I realized that I was looking at the problem from a, from a completely wrong and futile perspective that would never allow for me to make any progress because whatever I could change in my artificial architecture it would always and only have to do with structure and function, never with experience. So am I thinking wrongly about experience? And that's how philosophy returned to my life. At some point, I was criticized for 
not having a formal degree in philosophy, which was an ad hominem, but an ad hominem, ad hominem that I thought was fair. Not, not all ad hominems are unfair. Some ad hominems have direct bearing on the, the question at hand. So I thought that particular ad hominem was fair. And then I took three or four years and I started publishing all kinds of technical papers in all kind of, kinds of academic publications and got myself a second PhD. So now that criticism is dealt with. <laughs> That's interesting. I've, I've had similar uh, criticisms uh, as, a, as a physicist, not having, you know, the, the, the philosophy field is, is rife with uh, strange words that I don't know the definitions of. And uh, I quickly am left behind when a philosopher starts discussing these words. Uh, do you feel now, now that you're a PhD in philosophy, are, are you, you're a master of this, do you feel you're, that the worth, the value of all that work you put into the philosophy um, degree has been comparable to your computer degree? Or, you know, can you balance the two? Is it? Oh, superior. Far superior. I mean, as a computer engineer, I've designed many toys, including the data acquisition system of the Atlas experiment. Um, but uh, these toys make life easier, but they don't have a direct bearing on the meaning of life. Um, philosophy has. Philosophy percolates the very fabric of existence. It, it, it is the uniquely human mental activity. It's philosophy. Now, animals can build tools. They can construct things. Look at a, a termites. Uh, and ants, and ants farm and build large houses with multiple chambers. They have an army well organized, and so then none of that stuff is uniquely human. You know, uh, uh, corvids and and the higher primate primates they can use tools. Uh, what makes us unique is our ability to philosophize. So uh, I, I I know if I am remember remembered for anything, I will be remembered not for the little computers I built or my participation in. Large, large technology projects, both at CERN and at ASML. You know, I've been involved for many years in semiconductors manufacturing. Um, I, I'll be remembered rather, if anything, for my philosophical positions. Yeah, I've I've, al I've always um, fallen back on the adage that um, to do philosophy, you need pen and paper. To do science, you need pen and paper and garbage can. The Philosophy seems to be, you know, it, it puts together a lot of very complex constructs, but they seem to always go around circulars. I, I don't feel like anything ever gets settled in philosophy. I feel like we have to go to experimentation to, to, to uh, um, falsify uh, certain paths of thinking. How, does, how do you feel about, you know, does philosophy solve things? Uh, I am very critical of academic philosophy. I think historically it has hardly settled any debate because unlike science, which has experimentation as a way to pose a question to nature and get an objective answer, philosophers can entertain their pet bullshit for forever uh, and still get it published if it is um, internally coherent enough. Um, but of course, most of what is internally coherent is just fantasy. Um, so I think philosophy, academic philosophy, desperate, desperately lacks some kind of Darwinian evolutionary process. 
So we can abandon bullshit and move on, even if some people are intellectually married to that bullshit. And right now, that's not in place. And um, there is very little professional motivation for that to be in place because philosophy is no longer something that uh, you can do because you have a patron, like it used to be in earlier centuries. But now it's a profession that gets paid at the end of the month based on productivity. And of course, a Darwinian processing philosophy would probably wipe out many jobs uh, uh, for philosophers, <laughs> careers that are committed to certain perspectives that I'm saying we should just abandon that nonsense altogether and stop wasting you know, taxpayer money on, on nonsense. Um, so I don't think that will fly. So I'm very critical of academic philosophy in that sense. But I don't think that we can expect of philosophy the same a clear-cut Darwinian process that science has, because the reason is the following. Science is an, an, a, an attempt to study, model, and then predict the behavior of nature, what nature does. And these are the questions that experiments settle. You ask a question to nature, you wait, wait for nature to do something, and then nature does that, and it will either be uh, consistent with your theory or refute your theory. Um, but philosophy doesn't ask questions of behavior. That's science. Philosophy asks questions of being. What is the thing that behaves? And that is not directly settled by experiment, even though experiment does have a bearing. If you have an ontology, a narrative about what nature is that has certain behavioral implications, and then nature's behavior contradict those implications, then your ontology is nonsense. Just drop it. <laughs> Be done with it. Um, but it's not as easy for philosophers to formulate clear-cut experiments that are decisive. Um, most of nature's behaviors can be consistent with multiple uh, ontological alternatives. And then you have to use other criteria, such as internal consistency, explanatory power, um, um, not only empirical adequacy. Empirical adequacy is one aspect, but there are four others that philosophers need in order to make choices. The problem is that the other four are not as clear-cut uh, what you consider coherent, others may consider not coherent. What you consider tremendously lack explanatory power, the other one might consider a, a promising alternative for the future and replace explanatory power with promissory notes. So things don't get settled for that reason. So getting back to the, the, the ideas of consciousness, so you're a proponent of a, of a certain metaphysical uh, idea. Uh, and you've written extensively on this. You, I, so let me paraphrase. You believe that mind and consciousness are the basic elements of reality. How did you come to this mm -hmm. view? Was this just a, a strong application of Occam's razor? I think, therefore, I am, and, and everything else is extraneous? Well, that, that's one aspect of it. Uh, the simpler thing to do is to say the one ontological category in nature is the one we know for sure to exist because we are directly acquainted with it. And that's experiential stuff, mind stuff, qualitative stuff. Uh, but there are other reasons for this. Look, to say that nature is mental is not to say that nature is all in your mind or all in my mind. It is to say that it's out there. There is an objective world that we cannot change merely by wishing it to be different. doesn't matter how long you pray or, or how, how long you repeat your affirmations. The world is what it is, whether you are here or not. Um, but it is also mental in nature, just like your thoughts, in the same sense that my thoughts are mental, even though they are not your thoughts. And even though you can't think my thoughts right now. 
you can only detect the footprints of my thoughts uh, on your dashboard of sensors and instruments, and you call it my brain or my body. Um, so that's what I put forward. And uh, the justification for this is parsimony. That's one. Uh, but also explanatory power, because you see, um, parsimony tells us that uh, we can play the game of reduction very far, but at the end of the day, there has to be a reduction base. There has to be at least one thing in nature that you can't explain in terms of anything else, but in terms of which you can explain everything else. In other words, uh, you say, well, I reduce A to B, B to C, eventually you come to Z. And then you cannot reduce Z. So Z has no explanation in terms of anything else. But uh, all the other letters can be explained in terms of Z. So that's the best you can hope to, to achieve. So any metaphysics, any theory of what the nature is, has to have at least one element in the reduction base. And the criteria then is which element do you choose to make sure that everything else can be reduced to that one thing? Materialism chooses uh, things that are exhaustively defined in terms of quantities alone. Numbers, mass, charge, momentum, amplitude, frequency, all that good stuff. Um, but it then fails to reduce qualities to the quantities. Um, you know, what is the, the weight of your thought? Uh, what's the color of your feeling of hunger? Uh, it, 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 these two domains are incommensurable. So materialism chooses a reduction base that doesn't allow materialists to reduce the, the main part of nature, the only one we are directly acquainted with, to that element in the reduction base. And that's a severe problem in terms of explanatory power. Um, so that's another reason why I chose uh, mind, not your mind, not my mind, but mind as a kind of existent, as a, as a metaphysical category. Um, to be the only element in the reduction base. And then we can, and that's what I've been trying to get across for 15 years, we can reduce everything else to this transpersonal field of subjectivity at the foundational level of nature, I think. Wow. Okay. That's, that's uh, a very hard to, to grasp. Uh, so your axiom is that mind is the underlying substance of the universe that and that you believe that you can reduce this mind to explain materialism to to you can derive numbers and from the qualities is that this well the, historically you don't even need me to conclude the last part of your statement that numbers come from qualities because historically um, the, the the very beginning of science in the late 16th and 17th centuries um the numbers were descriptions of the world we see. And the world we see is qualitative. It has colors, it has flavors, it has melodies, it has texture. Um, and we used numbers to describe those qualitative properties. So if I, if I would say a piece of luggage weighs 50 kilos, you know what feeling you expect when you pull it up, as opposed to a piece of luggage that weighs five kilos. So uh, kilograms were a description of experience. Uh, uh, all of the other numbers, uh, frequency of oscillation of the electromagnetic field in the visual spectrum, they are descriptions of the qualities that we call colors. Um, that's how it began. But at some point in the 19th century, uh, we took a very strange turn. Um, we decided to replace the thing described with the description. Uh, and say that the world somehow 
came out of the description. We, we separated ourselves from the description. We said, all these numbers, they exist out there. We didn't make them up. They are out there. All these frequencies and amplitudes and angles and geometrical relationships, charge, mass, spin, moment, all that stuff is out there. They didn't come from us. And the world we see somehow arises from these quantities as they are instantiated inside our skull. And that's how colors are produced and colors are entirely inside our skull and so forth. It's like replacing the map with uh, the territory. Um, and that's the move that has led to what we call the hard problem of consciousness, which is that there is nothing about these physical quantities in terms of which you could deduce the qualities of experience. The link between the two um, is purely correlational. It's empirical. Uh, we know that certain maps of brain activity correspond to certain feelings, but that's just a correspondence. We cannot explicitly elaborate on the causation that may be involved. I think um, the reason that materialism has become the basis of science is that it's easy to be quantitative, to be precise. You know, this you can derive universal laws of of uh, energy conservation and track it quantitatively. And, and do these experiments to verify them, whereas qualities, is there, you can't conserve color or feeling. You know, these are chemical states of the brain, supposedly. If you, if you go back from, if, you know, you look at how the neurology works and how feelings come about, you know, we, we can influence them with drugs. We know that these are very subjective <laughs> things, and, and it's very difficult to define, to, to work with. I think, I think that's been the problem, is we can't define it to work with it. Oh, but that's exactly what has been done. We have defined the world in terms of quantities alone. Look, I'm not uh, uh, um, trying to put down the value of quantities and descriptions. The whole of science depends on them. Descriptions are incredibly powerful and they allow us to predict nature's behavior because these quantities can be plugged into predictive models and we can run these models and say, well, nature will do this next. And lo and behold, often we make those predictions correctly. Quantum field theory is correct now down to 21 decimal points, I thought. It's the latest. I, I, I may, don't quote me on that. This number may be wrong. Uh, but uh, um, so I, I'm, descriptions are incredibly important and they are at the heart of science. That's not what I'm going against. What I'm going against is when a scientist or a philosopher does philosophy, not science, and says, these descriptions are not descriptions. They are the world as it is in itself. That leads to all kinds of problems. And uh, by understanding the world as mental, we don't put down the descriptions at all because the correlations are still there. We are still able to predict. Um, nor do I deny that there exists an objective world outside my mind. It is there, all right, and it, all right, and it will be there if I'm not here to look at it. Now, what we call the physical world, and that's, I think, the mistake we made. Um, we have sensors, like an airplane has sensors of air humidity and air pressure, wind direction, uh, and all that stuff. We have sensors. They are our eyes, ears, mucus lining of the nose, surface of the tongue, uh, skin, outer surface of the skin. So just like in the airplane, these sensors make measurements about what is really out there. But what happens in an airplane? Those measurements are displayed to the pilot in the form of a dashboard of dials. And you can use that to fly a plane without windows. You can fly by instruments alone. Now, the dials convey accurate information about the world out there, but the dials are not the world. They are a representation thereof. If you apply this to us, our dials that provide us information uh, based on what our sensors pick up 
is a screen of perception. And physics is a science of perceptions, the science of the world we perceive. So perception is our dashboard. Perception is, perception is not the world. Perception is a representation of the world. But we think it is the world. We, we say that the physical world is the world as it, it is out, as it is out there. Never mind that 40 years of experiments in foundations of physics are telling us that that's, that cannot possibly be the case. We still, still try to divide some loophole to convince ourselves that it may still be the case. Well, I, I think it's very clear cut that it's not the case. What we call the physical world is a representation of the real world. It's our dashboard. And therefore, if you don't measure, there is no physical world. In an airplane, if the sensors don't measure, the dials show nothing on the dashboard. That doesn't mean that there isn't a world out there. Of course, there is a world out there. It's just not the dashboard. It's not physical. Physicality emerges as a consequence of measurement. Um, now the paradox dis uh, paradoxes dissolve if you see the world like this. You know, uh, um, bells and legate inequalities start making sense. The paradoxes dissolve. Uh, but we have then to grant this unpalatable thing for 20th and 21st century culture, which is the world as it is in itself isn't physical. Physicality is a representation that arises from measurement. All of science to applies, all of our predictions, so long as they're experimentally confirmed, still hold. There is still a, a world out there. What we are talking about now is what that world is in and of itself. And I say, it's not just a description because that's incoherent. It leads you to a wall. What that world is, is of the same kind of what happens inside me. If, if I'm feeling sad and I look at myself in the mirror, I see material tears. That material is what my sadness looks like when displayed on my dashboard of dials, on the screen of my perception. Matter is what inner mentation looks like. Take that out to the world at large. And if you... Uh, um, postulate that nature contains spontaneous subjectivity. That's what the world is, a field of spontaneous subjectivity, not thoughts like you and I have. We are the product of billions of years of evolution in order to be able to react timely to environmental challenges. Nature at large, I would say, is very simple mentation, uh, a very spontaneous mentation. That's why the laws of physics uh, reflect a very stable behavior of nature because at a foundational level, it's simple, spontaneous, a predictable mentation. And when we measure it, we get the physical world, which is a rep cognitive representation built by the cognitive apparatus that evolution has equipped us with in order to maneuver and survive in this environment. Okay, that's... that's I, I see what you're trying to get at. It's, it's difficult to understand what that means, though. Are you positing then like a, a Gaia-type world where there's a universal mind that is the basis of everything or what is what does it mean that the universe is basically mental is is it a, a coherent mind a conscious mind what is this mind i use the word mind as a synonymous of what philosophers call phenomenal consciousness which is the existence of subjectivity the, the basis for experience and, and now um you could say that if I postulate that um, what we call quantum fields are actually descriptions of a field of subjectivity, then you could say correctly that it's a universal mind. But I don't mean by that that is that it is a thinking, loving field, divinity kind, premeditating, planning, making 
kind of mind, I think it is a very spontaneous, fairly simple uh, mind. Otherwise, a paramecium would have higher level mental functions. If those mental, higher level mental functions were already in the fabric of nature from the beginning, we wouldn't have needed evolution to develop our ability, for instance, to think rationally and to metacognize and introspect. I think all these higher level mental functions are the hard earned product of bloody evolution over the eons. I think the mind of nature is a natural mind. So in that sense, I'm a naturalist. Um, I'm just saying that, well, there is a nature out there. There is a world out there. Everybody would agree with me, I think. Um, and I'm just saying that the type of existence that that thing is, is the same type as what we call human minds, which doesn't mean that it has thoughts like we have or emotions like we have. It's a spontaneous, simple field of subjectivity, um, not an entity or an intelligent entity. I, I, I don't think the, the evidence uh, allows us to coherently postulate that. The, this um, model, um, assuming uh, a, maybe not sentient, but experiential universe, seems to resonate with some Buddhist and Hindu teachings. Are, are you a religious person or do you have a particular religious uh, association or do you believe one of the religions has 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 brought this idea forward or has some correspondence to the reality that you're positing well i think the correspondences are, are i would be um, naive or silly to try to deny the correspondences uh, many world religions have been talking about a universal mind apparently is this the way i came at it no i didn't have a religious upbringing so it's a background i don't have but on on my favor, I think I also don't have an axe to grind. I'm not trying to take revenge on my uh, former religious self, like uh, <laughs> some of the rationalists around the world today. You know, they're they're very biased in that sense. It's like they have an axe to grind. I I I, I grew up with a neutral view of religion. That's not something that was imposed on me um, when I was at university. It's not something, frankly, I took very seriously. As I mature and my philosophy mature, I came at it from a purely rational and empirical perspective. I was struggling with the questions of AI when I was at CERN. So that, you know, th that's how I came at this. But uh, my attention was very quickly brought many years ago to these correspondences. And the story I like to tell myself about it is that, look, whatever the truth is, it's not fragile. We are bang in the middle of it. Uh, we are part of it. So it's not a surprise that people would explicitly bump against it throughout history across cultures and communicate it in the language of their time. I, I communicate with the language of, well, Western conceptual reasoning, because that happens to have been my cradle. It's, it's the language I was given, the language I was educated in. And maybe the Vedas were written in the language of their time, what, whatever was happening in the Hindu Valley three and a half thousand years ago. I just I feel good that there are correspondences. To me, this this is a, provides some form of reassurance. I'm not a religious person in the sense that I endorse one particular religion. I tend to think that if we interpret religions metaphorically, all of the main world's religions are are hinting or one and another thing that probably does make sense. I don't think they are uh, ludicrous. I think when they are interpreted literally, then they become ludicrous in the interpretation. But I think that is, that's a straw man. Religion is a form to capture human intuition. 
um, and give a language to it at a time when our conceptual arsenal was very limited. We didn't have all the conceptual nuance and richness that we have today. So we had to think by analogy if we were to give language to those intuitions and insights. So I see religious religions positively in that sense without closing my eyes um, to the catastrophe that uh, uh, literal interpretations of religious mythology can lead to and has led to in the course of human history. Indeed, it's very important. So I want to differentiate your worldview from some other ones that uh, I've heard of and the people have expressed to me, uh, positing a universal quote unquote mind seems to me a sort of panpsychism, yet you've argued against panpsychism as mis misled. I'm just learning this field, but it's difficult for me to differentiate between the two. Can you can you differentiate your uh, your metaphysics from panpsychism, where everything has a, has a has an experience? Yeah. Okay. That's when the shit show of philosophy starts uh, <laughs> impairing us. So I try to cut through uh, a lot of that terminology. There are many versions of panpsychism. Some of them, cosmic versions of panpsychism, are called cosmic uh, um, cosmopsychism. I think is the modern name they gave. I I don't endorse this neologism, you know, trying to invent new names for things that have been in the philosophy literature forever. So I just use the old name, idealism. But the popular form of panpsychism is technically called constitutive panpsychism. And it states that uh, there is matter, the world is constituted of matter, and that matter has the same structure that we consider matter to have. In other words, subatomic particles, elementary subatomic particles that come together and form higher level entities, physical entities. But it then says that those elementary subatomic particles are conscious, that they don't only have charge, momentum, uh, spin, they also have what's technically called phenomenal states. And your conscious, unitary conscious in their life or seemingly unitary conscious in their life is constituted by the combination of those gazillions of microscopic little conscious in their lives of the particles that constitute your brain. The problem with that is manifold, but a big one that's always discussed is the combination problem, which is there is no coherent account for how fundamentally distinct fields of subjectivity could combine to form a seemingly unitary field of subjectivity. If you think it through, you realize that it's an incoherent concept. You cannot explicitly even conceive of what that might be, let alone prove. Um, and I think it's based on the following mistake. Um, it takes the structure of the representation. The physical world, in my view, is a representation of the world. Um, the screen of perception is our dashboard of dials. It's a repre an accurate representation of what's out there, but it is not what is out there in the same sense that the airplane's dashboard is not the storm outside the cockpit. It's a representation thereof. Uh, Pensykes makes the mistake of taking the pixelation, the resolution of the dashboard to be the structure of the world behind the dashboard. So the, the structure of matter are just the pixels of the screen of perception. And when panpsychism says an individual mind is constituted of those little fundamentally conscious pixels coming together, it's making the same mistake I would make 
if I were to say that you are made of little rectangles just because the representation of you on my monitor right now is made of pixels. I'm taking the structure of the representation and attributing it to the thing represented. I think that's the mistake. I think uh, um, subatomic particles are the pixels of the representations, not of the subject that is represented on the dashboard in the form of a metabolizing organism with patterns of brain activity and so forth. So th that's one error. And the main problem, as I said, is the combination problem. There is no coherent account for that, let alone any, any empirical grounding of that. Uh, while for idealism, there is empirical grounding. But to be fair, I guess, you know, obviously that's a problem. The unity of, of individual uh, conscious elements is, is unexplained in that theory. In, in your theory, the disunity is also unexplained. Why are we individuals if there's a universal mind? I, th I think they, they both have challenges to yeah. entertain. <laughs> yes, they, so there are three canonical problems. If you're a physicalist, the canonical problem is the hard problem of consciousness. How can I deduce the qualities of experience from physical properties? If you're a constitutive panpsychist, the canonical problem is the combination problem. We don't have a coherent account of how fundamentally separate subjectivities could combine. If you're an idealist, then you face the decomposition problem, which is you, you solve the combination problem by circumventing it, by saying there is only one field of subjectivity in nature, but then you have to account for why I can't read your thoughts right now, why I don't know what's happening in the galaxy of Andromeda, because if I am part of the one universal mind, how come I don't know everything? Um, uh, the difference is that for the decomposition problem, there is a solution existing in nature, empirically. Even if we don't have a satisfying conceptual account of it, we know it happens. And that's a condition known in psychiatry as dissociation, uh, which we have known for at least two centuries now. But only since the turn of the 21st century have we verified it objectively through neuroimaging. Dissociative processes in the mind of a patient with dissociative identity disorder look like something. You can diagnose dissociative identity disorder or DID uh, through M fMRI uh, images. Um, and the effect, on the mental effect of dissociation is exactly that, is when one mind fragments itself into multiple disjoint uh, centers of experience that may or may not be aware of the existence of one another, but memories become sort of compartmentalized in, across those different centers of awareness. Usually in human beings, that's a response to trauma. Our, our inability to integrate profound trauma leads to this fragmentation. Um, but there is plenty of clinical evidence um, that um, alters are simultaneously conscious, although not they don't simultaneously have executive control. Very rarely that happens. And then one author tries to play a trick on the other by making you trip on, on, on a rock, on, the, on your path, whatever. Um, uh, but dissociation does exist. We know that empirically now there is this research done in Germany in 2015, a woman with multiple alters, some of her alters claim to be blind. So the, the psychiatrist had this wonderful idea to instrument her with an EEG cap and measure activity in the visual cortex. Lo and behold, when a blind alter was in control, there was no activity in the visual cortex, even though the woman's eyes were open and working. And when the host personality was in control, the woman could see and normal brain activity would return. 
to the visual cortex. So not only does dissociation create this separation of centers of awareness uh, with compartmentalized mental contents, it can literally make you blind to the world right in front of your open eyes. Um, so my hypothesis is that dissociation doesn't only happen in individual minds like humans and animals. Uh, if we extrapolate that to the field of subjectivity of nature itself, then what we call life is what dissociative natural processes look like when represented on our dashboards. In other words, biological bodies are the representation of dissociated alters uh, at the foundational level of nature. That's what life is. Uh, um, life, biology, metabolism is a representation, an extrinsic appearance, an image of natural dissociation. And the end of life is the end of the dissociation. So is, is this um, dissociation something that happened in the original cell uh, and continued through evolution? Has um, this been given an evolutionary advantage? Yeah, it didn't happen in the cell. So let's say the original archaea, uh, the, the first, well, not even archaea, beyond, before that, the, the, the first single-celled organism capable of uh, DNA transcription and reproduction. It didn't happen in it. That organism was what the first dissociation on this planet looked like when observed, when measured, when represented on the screen of perception. Uh, life is not the medium within which dissociation happens, th that happens too when we become dissociated ourselves. But life, in the sense I'm trying to get across, is what dissociation looks like. So when the original dissociation happened on the universe, maybe on planet Earth, abiogenesis, the, the, the rise of life from non-life, that was the first dissociative process. And it, if we were there to observe, it would have looked like a cell-like simple organism. And then through the process of evolution, life became more complex. The contents within these dissociative alters became more complex, evolved higher level mental functions, and so on and so forth. And does this then argue that the dissociation can be cured and we can access greater connection with the universe? <laughs> Uh, I'm not romantic about this at all. The dissociation is bound to be cured when you die <laughs> and then you're gone and you're, because you are the dissociative process in that sense. You know, what you call the ego is part of that dissociative process. So it's not, I'm not looking for the cure of that. Um, look, uh, we pathologized lower level dissociation in human minds because it makes us dysfunctional in society. Uh, Preliterate societies don't pathologize dissociation. On the contrary, if you have a dissociative person in a preliterate society, he would have become the shaman. Uh, he would have gotten free food uh, from the tribe uh, and he would be the one, whatever, to talk to the spirits of whatever. So when I say that it's a dissociative mechanism, I'm extrapolating from a phenomenon that we know happens in nature. Human minds are part of nature, but I'm not trying to carry with it the 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 value judgment that it is a pathology, I think nature has no such value judgments, good, evil, pathological or not. Nature is what it is. It just does what it does. And dissociation is one of the things that we know it does. I'm just extrapolating that to, to a higher level in the hierarchy of nature, but I'm, I'm not trying to attribute pathological value to it. I think that's nonsensical. It's, it's just what nature does. And it's not good, it's not bad. It's just what nature is and what it does. 
So I want to explore a little bit more about um, the relationship between your your metaphysics and actual physics and quantum mechanics has been something that you know it's as you say it's our most well understood physical theory we know the only thing we know about it is that it's correct um (laughs) but we don't understand where it comes from or how it works uh how does your uh your metaphysics sit with quantum mechanics and and the measurement problem and collapse of the wave function Okay, so I've talked specifically about quantum field theory, which is the relativistic extension of quantum mechanics, because that's that, that, that's what quantum mechanics actually is, unless you stopped in 1940, <laughs> before Feynman. We've made a little progress after that. Um, the key understanding of quantum field theory and the thing that allows it to be reconciled with relativity is the notion of fields. It's a notion that there are no elementary subatomic particles as spatially bound entities. What we call elementary subatomic particles, these are just metaphors. What they mean is local patterns of excitation of a spatially unbound field, like a ripple on the lake. Uh, An elementary subatomic particle is a little ripple in the lake that is one of the quantum fields. There are, I think, uh, 17 quantum fields. I think that's the state of the art right now, and hopefully it will go lower at some point. Um, and that dovetails well with idealism because idealism also needs, for it to be coherent, it needs this field of subjectivity uh, to not have proper parts, to not have spatial boundaries. It needs to be something that uh, even underlies the concept of space-time, just like loop quantum gravity is trying to do today. Um, so quantum field theory dovetails with idealism in the sense that both say that the foundational level of nature, there aren't things with spatial boundaries. There are only spatially unbound fields and that things are just patterns of excitation of the fields. In idealist language, you would say experiences, local experiences, my experiences as opposed to yours, they are local patterns of excitation of that field of subjectivity underlying all nature. So that dovetails well with QFT, even with M-theory that tries to sort of reduce the number of fields at great cost and the number of parameters, but uh, you're, you're more fluent about that than I am probably. Another thing that dovetails well, and that now it has to do with entanglement and the measurement problem that you alluded to, and that's an experimental thing. It's not a theoretical thing. We know that um, if you have two entangled particles and you shoot one of them to the left and then the other one to the right, and you make simultaneous measurements on those particles, what you choose to measure about one particle determines what is actually measured about the other. So to, to speak technical terms, if you are going to measure angular momentum, then the angle along which you will measure, you choose to measure angular momentum in particle A, you will determine the angular momentum of particle B, even if particle B is on the other side of the universe and the measurements are simultaneous. So what that shows is that physical properties, which is what we used to define physicality, physical properties are not there before measurement. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this effect that I just described. Particle A would have whatever angular momentum it has, regardless of measurement, so would angular B. Uh, So would particle B. So what you choose to measure about particle A wouldn't determine the result of the outcome of measurement on particle B. Uh, It turns out that it does determine. We have refined this and eliminated loopholes since the late 70s, uh, culminating, depending on who you ask, 2015 or 2018, the Big Bell test. Uh, and in 2015, the, the experiment done here in the Netherlands at the University of Delft. Um, 
So physical properties are not there before you measure, which raises the question, was it, what is it that you measured? And uh, that dovetails well with idealism, because what idealism would say is physical things are indeed the result of measurement in the same sense that what the dials indicate on the dashboard are the result of what the airplane sensors measure. Before you, the sensors measure the world, the dials show nothing. Or there is no physical world until you measure, because the physical world is a representation of the thing you do measure. And the thing that you do measure is then what, what is left? Well, mental stuff, stuff that you can't describe through physical quantities. What's the length of my next thought? What's the color of my bellyache? Uh, uh, what is the angular momentum of my emotion? <laughs> if you know what I mean? Uh, so that's what you have left, things of that kind. Um, now, going to superdeterminism and the attempts to uh, rescue uh, a physicalist metaphysics from the results of these experiments, we can go one by one. I mean, it's a lot to talk. It would probably take an hour only to refute all of those alternatives. But uh, uh, let's, I mentioned only one because I uh, recently had a, a debate on this, superdeterminism. What superdeterminism tries to do is to say, well, it's the, the, the settings of the experimental instruments, they have a causal effect on what the thing measured is. So by setting the angular momentum on the two measurement devices, I causally enforce the particle to have a certain angular momentum. So that's a, that, that when you do that, you are, you are breaking away from the principle of statistical independence that uh, underlies all science, which is the result of your measurement does not depend on the measurement, it depends only on the thing measured. Um, so it, uh, this is equivalent, if I would translate this proposal for the microscopic level, if I would translate it to our world, what this means is the following. Every time you take your camera to photograph the moon, the settings of your camera, such as aperture and exposure time, they would causally determine what the moon is. That's what superdeterminism requires. That by changing the settings on your measurement apparatus, you change the thing measurement, measured. So you change the moon by the mere act of changing the aperture or exposure time of your camera. You don't change only the representation of the moon that comes out of your camera. You change the very thing represented. Now, if you believe that, um, and you don't want it to be just an appeal to magic, you have to provide at least a coherent and explicit theoretical account of how this process takes place. Um, you have, to speak technical language, you have to provide at least an explicit and coherent path integral uh, that shows what these uh, hidden variables are and how they do what they are supposed to do. But nobody in the world has ever provided a testable account uh, for what this might be. It's just a sort of a hand-waving appeal to an unknown and say, well, there is something invisible that does exactly what we need it to do for us to be able to hold on to our metaphysical prejudices. Well, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know the, um, I guess the most popular theory of, 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 hidden variables or determinism is like the, the pilot wave, the de Broglie-Bohm pilot wave, and that there are existing particles that roll around on this quantum field and, and, and its influence. But I had a, a great interview a few weeks back of uh, physicists Lemmel and Hoffman, and they, had, they did a recent uh, neutron double slit experiment where they showed 
that the neutron uh, does go through both paths simultaneously. They they basically just they've refuted the the pilot wave. It's gone, in my opinion, based on that result. If you look at the history of that, that the, who came up with that was uh, De Broglie, and he abandoned it even before David Bond got into the bandwagon. So the the originator sort of said, ah, I don't I don't believe this anymore. So Bond articulated this in a large two part paper in 1951, if I remember correctly, or 1950, very early 50s. Um, but even before the experimental refutation that happened in 2018, there were, there were plenty of other reasons why Bohmian mechanics, uh, which is how it's known today, why, why that is untenable. I mean, for starters, it doesn't have a relativistic extension. So you can't reconcile that with general relativity. Some people would say, well, it doesn't have a relativistic extension yet, but it might have. I submit to you that it can never have because the very thing that makes quantum field theory uh, uh, compatible with gen ge uh, general relativity is to do away with the notion of particles as spatially bound little entities, which is what you need in, 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 in Bohmian mechanics. You need a particle to be a little thing that rides the, the pilot wave. So to make an extension, you have to part with the very spirit of Bohmian mechanics, I would argue. But, but again, yeah, I'm not a theoretical physicist, so maybe I'm wrong. No, neither am I. <laughs> um, but getting back to your idea of, of, of how the quantum field theory works with your field of subjectivity, I, I, I feel like you're positing that the quantum field is this field of subjectivity uh, because they're both basis, they both mean their their bases of of our experience of the universe but there's this this collapse mechanism that's very misunderstood or, or not well explained in quantum mechanics in that as you say as de depending on what measurements happen where things exist or they don't exist um and there's um there's there's an association in some some people say that you know mind is what's required to collapse the wave function, and then that's that's a controversial statement because other people will say, well, just a measurement apparatus would also cause this collapse, and 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 Penrose would say gravity makes this collapse, and there's 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 all sorts of ideas that are being experimented with right now on 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 uh, how the wave function collapses and and um, and what scales it might superpositions might exist on but if you're if your theory is positing that mind is what's causing uh collapse into states and, and the the process of of a, a mind observing making an observation causes a, a collapse of a wave function but the universe is mind does that mean you can't have superpositions because isn't the universe a mind well, by definition, I'm saying that mind is all there is. So whatever happens, it's something mind does. So from this very generic perspective, the answer is yes. Do I think that human minds have the magical power of changing the world fundamentally from a wave of possibilities into something concrete? No, I don't think human minds have the magical power to change what the world is at all. I think the world is what it is, regardless of individual human minds, dissociated segments of that foundation of nature are observing it or not. However, the physical world is not the world's 
as it is in itself. The physical world is a representation that arises from measurement. So you need an observing mind for that representation to exist in the same sense that you need an airplane with sensors measuring the world for a dashboard to indicate something. That dashboard, whether it's there or not, it will not change the world in itself. But you need a dashboard if you want to talk about a physical world because physicality is the representation that arises from a mind making an observation through its dashboard, which we call the screen of perception. You see what I mean? So we do not have magical powers at all to change the world as it is. But physical worlds are representations of observing minds. And then by definition, you have to have an observing mind to measure something so it can be represented on the dashboard we call the screen of perception. Now, the equivalence I see is the following. I'll try to frame it rigorously and unambiguously. If um, grand unification theories work and we manage to go from 17 quantum fields to one, and extraordinarily difficult, but I think one day it will happen. If and when that happens, I think that unified field will be our best description of the field of subjectivity underlying nature. So, you know, pay attention to the words I'm, I'm using. I, I, I thought carefully about each, each one of them. The unified field is not the field of subjectivity. The unified field is a theoretical entity within a theoretical model. That unified field will be the best model or description of that real thing up there, that field of subjectivity. That equivalence, I think, will happen. So I'm not saying that the quantum field is a mind. I'm saying that the unified field will be probably the best description we have of that universal field of subjectivity at the foundational level of nature. Um, yeah, did I miss something? Any aspect of your question? Trying to understand. So we have a very rigorous quantum theory that suggests that observations cause collapse because we observe these uh, the results of these things. Uh, and it's us, these dissociated minds that are making these observations. Uh, but when we're not observing them, or when we're not making observations, they are fuzzy superpositions. What is it? The, what is the what is happening when we say that we've collapsed a wave function? And why isn't the universal mind doing this? I think collapse does not reflect an actual event in the world out there. It's an epistemic thing. Um, it, it's our way, to, our way to describe an appearance of what happens. Uh, in other words, I don't think even the wave function uh, um, is ontic. Uh, in, uh, in physics, there, there are these two camps. People who think the wave function is ontic, in other words, it's real, really out there, and people who think that the wave function is epistemic. In other words, it's just our model, our representation of what might be out there, the best of what we know of what might be out there. I am in this latter camp. I think all entities, in, in science in general, but certainly in quantum field theory, they are models. In other words, they are convenient fictions. Nature behaves as though these things really existed until our measurement capacity grows to a point that we will measure things 
that make our convenient fictions inconvenient, and then we have to replace them. We replaced the convenient fiction of gravity as an invisible force acting at a distance uh, in the early 20th century. We said that there is no such magical invisible force that Newton postulated. What's really going on is that the fabric of space-time bends and twists. That's the current convenient fiction. And then there comes uh, 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 um, uh, loop gravity theories uh, uh, saying that, oh, now even that is not the, the correct convenient fiction. We need another. So I think all this stuff are just theoretical entities. They are models. They, are, they, are, they represent our attempt to make sense of what's going on, but they aren't exactly what's going on. They are, they are our, our fictions, our, our models. I don't think collapse really happens. Um, I think there is an appearance of collapse. I don't think there is a fundamental ontological change in the world just because we chose to measure it. That cannot be, <laughs> that cannot be the case. <laughs> it violates everything I think we understand about nature. Um, we have gone some way into reducing the need for collapse with decoherence, although, although I, I admit decoherence does not solve the measurement problem. Decoherence presupposes that the environment is already classical. But, but why is the environment already classical? Because decoherence just says the quantum state sort of leaks out and becomes dispersed in the environment when you make a measurement. Um, so nothing collapsed. It's just that the information contained in the superposition is now undetectable because it's diluted in the classical environment, which of course immediately raises the question, how come the environment is classical? <laughs> Why isn't the environment itself a grand superposition as it should? Now, philosophy doesn't solve that problem. <laughs> I'm afraid idealism doesn't solve that problem. Uh, idealism is not science. Um, idealism tries to be consistent with science. Because if science contradicts a metaphysics, then your metaphysics is just bloody wrong. You know, live with it and move on. Um, but metaphysics will not solve this. It may help give us a way of thinking that can lead to a solution to the measurement problem. But my intuition is there is no collapse out there. Collapse is an event on the dashboard. It's an event of the representation, not of the world up there. And quantum superpositions, they are our descriptions of very simple, basic mental processes. I'll give you an example to try to bring some intuition. Uh, imagine that you are, you are offered a job, and for a day you walk around undecided. You don't know whether you should take the job or not take the job. So in your mind, your mind is in a superposition of two states. You are co co concurrently living the reality of taking the job and not taking the job. That's what we call an indecisive state of mind. And um, I don't want to anthropomorphize nature because I think that's a fallacy. But something very vaguely related to this may be what is described by a superposition. I don't think an observation will change that thing that is described by a superposition, because I don't think observers have magical powers to change the bloody universe. Um, but somehow an observation will represent what is out there in the universe in a constrained way. It will represent only one facet of, of what is really out there. And that's what we call collapse. It's a partial representation of what might be really out there. Now, why it is that partial representation is this instead of that, I don't know. I don't know. We would have to come up with 
the wave function for the universe and the wave function for the observer, observer's mind, and then calculate the interference patterns between the two through a Markov blanket dividing, dividing the status of both until we can answer that question. In other words, it's not even in sight. Uh, we will never have a computer that can calculate these wave functions because it's just an exponential explosion of complexity. Every time you add a new quark to it, let alone the entire universe. So there we may be facing some impassable epistemic barriers. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's that's interesting and, and uh, something that I'm going to have to wrap my head around for, for some time because, you know, they're, they're, it raises a lot of questions. Obviously, you know, we know that collapse seems to happen. So the question is, what is this illusion if it's not real? What does it mean? And, the, and obviously, there are different uh, quantum mechanical theories that try to get around this. There's the many worlds theorem that does say that the the wave function never collapses; it just evolves, and we all live on separate. We live every possible uh, decision that we could have made, and these are just independent worlds that can once once you make an observation, you're just finding out which world you're in. <laughs> I think that's complete fantasy. It's completely fantasy, totally ungrounded in in experimentation and, and empirical evidence. But okay. <laughs> but if you don't accept collapse, then you're forced ontologically into something like that, aren't you? No. Then I'm forced ontologically into recognizing that my representation of the world as it is is a partial representation of it. Um, let me give you an example with a metaphor. Um, imagine that you, you you like soccer. And there will be a, um, a match, and you are so fond of soccer, you buy two TV screens to watch the soccer match on two different channels, live, at the same time, on your living room. And imagine that a time traveler from the 19th century comes to visit you and watches the match with you. And your, your time traveler friend becomes just flabbergasted with the fact that the little man inside one box run in a way that's completely coordinated and correlated with how the little man in the other box run. The images are different. Pretend that the broadcasters have different cameras on the stadium. So the images are different, but they're entirely correlated. The little man on one side run that way, the little man on the other side run that other way, and they are always in tune. And your time traveler go, goes like, this is fantastic. The boxes are not communicating to one another. How can be these correlations? I'm describing entanglement. Now, the error is to think that the images on the boxes are the thing in itself, that there are actual little men inside the boxes. The problem dissolves when you become aware that the images on the boxes are just representations of the real thing, and the real thing is happening in the stadium. It's not the image. The physical world is just what the TV is showing. It's not the soccer match. Now, what is peculiar is that although the cameras are different, they all follow the same ball because there is only one ball. So the cameras move in a coordinated fashion. That's collapse. It shows us only one facet of the soccer match. Because, you know, if, when you're following the ball, you're not showing the goalkeeper on the other side. You're not showing the reserve players. You're not showing the rest of the stadium. You're showing only the ball. And both TVs follow the ball. So they are always correlated. The problem we are raising, the problem of collapse, is what is the ball that is followed? And I don't have an answer for that. 
I don't know what plays the role of the ball that everybody's looking at, but I can tell you that that's, um, it is a coherent metaphor for collapse. Collapse, collapse means that of all the superposed states out there, we only see one facet, one set of states and not the others. In the metaphor, that's the camera going after the ball and not showing the rest of what's going on in the stadium. And that happens on both TVs, which, which you know, fits entanglement into the metaphor. I don't know what plays the role of the ball. I don't think that problem has been solved, but I don't think collapse is something happening in the stadium. If you are the stadium, you can see everything. Collapse is an artifact of the TV screens, is an artifact of the measured thing, of the representation. Because I refuse to believe that a little human being, a monkey running around a rock on a typical galaxy, has the power to look at the world and change what the universe actually is in and of itself instantaneously by the mere fact of making a measurement. No, I will part with that even only if all other alternatives are convincingly discarded. I, I, I think I see what you're saying, um, but I also think that this is, is, is somewhat an appeal to a hidden variable, that there is some deeper truth which has some existence which can be quantified which is a hidden variable, which is inconsistent with the Bell's inequalities. So, <laughs> okay, I'll follow you. Conceptually, you're using the words hidden variables in a very generic sense. And then you're trying to extract the implications from a particular instance of hidden variables as those required to make sense of Bell's and Leggett's inequalities. I think that in that transition, there is a fallacy. Is there something hidden about the state of the universe that we know not, nothing of and can help us solve the measurement problem? Surely, yes. We are monkeys. We, we have been thinking rationally for 30,000 years. That's not even yesterday. It just happened. It's a blink of an eye ago in the history of the universe. So to, to imagine that we already know enough to figure out all the, generally speaking, hidden variables is preposterous. There's a lot of, a lot of states in the universe that are certainly explanatorily powerful and we know nothing of. But hidden variables now, specifically in the context of making sense of Bell's theories, those are physical hidden variables, variables of the dashboard. Those, I think, are fantasies that require us to part with too much of what we know about nature's behavior, parting with statistical independence. It's, it's too much. It's too much. Uh, and, and asking us to part with that even without an Explicit account of what these variables are. Now it's too much. It's 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 an expression of faith. This is not science. It's not a coherently formulated hypothesis. It's not even a hypothesis. It's hand waving. So those hidden variables are supposed to be physical hidden variables, states of the dashboard. Those I don't think explain what's going on. I, but I think there are hidden states of the world behind the dashboard. Those I think it, it's a virtual certainty. They are there because we don't know everything there is to know about nature. I think uh, I'm going to have to leave it at that. That's um, something that we can all cogitate on and and, uh, and discuss uh, after a few beers. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> we didn't cover everything. I'm sure some of your listeners are thinking, yeah, what about if I shoot somebody else in the head? That material bullet will have a very mental effect. <laughs> we can come back to that. <laughs>
the, there's a I, I would love to uh, maybe we should we should do this again sometime I appreciate you coming on the show and and, and presenting your your ideas to us that's a, uh, a lot to think about uh, but but well present well presented and, and very very interesting thank you so much uh, for for spending the time I'm gonna send you a t-shirt for the rational view uh, appreciate it a, a lot one last question for you uh, that I ask a lot of my contributors um, what kind of science fiction do you like? Are you a, a, an advocate of any type of science fiction? Any authors? I love science shows? fiction. Well, I I, I like uh, Stanislav Lem a lot, and although he hated Tark- Tarkovsky's take on his on his Solaris, I also like uh, uh, Tarkovsky. Um, in recent movies, I very much like um, Arrival. I think it's the best Hollywood sci-fi movie of all times. Uh, yeah. But a lot of what passes for science fiction is is just fantasy. It's, uh, it's bullshit. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I like true science fiction. <laughs> yeah, hard science fiction. Star Trek over Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars is not science fiction. It's fantasy, and then I love Star Wars as fantasy. Grew up with it. Star Trek tried to be science fiction for a while. Uh, I love Star Trek too, but uh, it's it's not very mature science fiction, I think. The, the, the most mature <laughs> science fiction is just written. <laughs> I very much like mm. um, um, uh, Philip K. Dick. Okay, yes, yes. Um, a lot very of it was fantasy good. too, not science fiction. He, d- he didn't have a scientific background, but he was very curious and he, he, re- he read a lot. And there's some good stuff there. Okay, well, thank you for your recommendations and, and your theory. Uh, great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.